Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. From 1886 to 1954, more than 20 million immigrants arrived in the United States through the Port of New York alone. They came from all over the world in search of a new life drawn by the promise of equality and opportunity here in this country. For many, the first sight of the United States that they caught was that of the Statue of Liberty beckoning them to their new home, her torch of guidance and welcome reaching into the sky over New York Harbor. The statue itself was a gift from the people of France to the United States in gratitude and recognition of centuries of friendship that bound the two countries to each other. It was designed by the renowned French sculptor Frédéric Auguste Bartholdi and fabricated by Gustave Eiffel, the designer and builder of the iconic Parisian tower that bears his name. Liberty Enlightening the World, as it was named by its designer, stands 151 feet tall from the soles of Lady Liberty to the tip of her torch. Her pedestal adds another 154 feet, bringing her total height to just over 305 feet. Copper statue turned just slightly green from oxidization dominates not only the New York Harbor, but has become one of the most iconic symbols of New York and the United States. It serves as a reminder of our history and a vision of the best of who we hope to be as a nation. There's that's why one of the last scenes in the 1968 film, The Planet of the Apes, was so shocking for many. The film tells the story of a group of American astronauts who travel through time and crash land on what they think is a far distant planet 2,000 years in the future. The planet is dominated by a powerful civilization of simians who regard humans as inferior life forms to be killed, enslaved, or used for experimentation. Struggle ensues between the astronauts and the simians, leading to a final conflict that sees the leader of the astronauts escape with one of the formerly enslaved humans. As they ride off into the sunset along a beach, they are stopped by the remains of the Statue of Liberty jutting up from the sand. The lead astronaut falls from his horse and cries out in despair, realizing that this is no foreign planet, but Earth itself, reborn in the aftermath of a cataclysmic nuclear disaster. Audiences were aghast at the images of the Lady Liberty in ruins, but critics heralded the film for its courage in portraying American vulnerability and the threat posed by nuclear war. Released in early 1968, the film became emblematic of a fractured nation torn apart by war and socioeconomic inequality, racism, and the civil unrest created by those conditions. 
even now more than half a century after they were first released, those final moments of the film are still both jarring and haunting. Most of us in the United States are not used to seeing our national symbols destroyed. We don't like to consider the idea that we might actually be vulnerable. In that regard, we're not unlike those first disciples of Jesus who were so impressed by the beauty and supposed permanence of the temple in Jerusalem. It was a symbol of their national identity and the enduring strength of their faith, but it was a building nonetheless. The disciples were enamored with the temple and the public buildings in Jerusalem, all of it. They were from the rural areas of Palestine where the tallest building was likely to be no more than a two-story house and in a town of no more than a few dozen structures. They weren't used to seeing a concentration of buildings as tall and as impressive as those in Jerusalem, nor were they accustomed to seeing so many people from so many different places. The city itself was completely overwhelming for them, and they were absolutely in love with it. That's what concerns Jesus. He spent the entirety of his ministry in Mark trying to teach them a very different way of life from the prevailing way of being. And he struggled to be heard both by the crowds and by the disciples. They have watched him contend with the religious leaders who have followed him, and they have seen the possibilities of fame and fortune, and most concerning of all, the possibility of power. Jesus has watched all of this with worry and has spent every moment possible pulling them aside and deconstructing the madness for them, teaching them what's right and good and just and challenging them to let go of their all-too-human desire for power, position, privilege, and prosperity. They've seen the possibilities, though, and they're hungry for them. The situation isn't helped when they arrive in Jerusalem and the disciples are awestruck by the city. Its buildings, its people, its amenities, they like what they see and they tell Jesus so. Teacher, have you ever seen such big buildings in all your life? The stones of which they're made of are larger than some of the buildings at home. Jesus must have sighed deeply before he replied, Yes, these buildings are impressive. They're tall and imposing, but they're temporary. There's a time coming when they will be torn down, completely obliterated. Not a single stone will be left on top of another stone. Nothing will be left of them at all. Nothing. You could probably have heard a pin drop at that moment. The jaws of the disciples had to be hanging open, their eyes wide in disbelief. What could Jesus mean? These buildings, this place at the center of the universe, how on earth could they be destroyed? Why would they be destroyed? The whole thing was so confusing, so perplexing, that the disciples don't dare say another word. They just keep walking with Jesus away from the temple, and they end up sitting down with him on the Mount of Olives. Maybe they stopped for a meal or maybe just to rest. Whatever the case, the disciples finally work up the courage to ask Jesus what he said. Teacher, how can this be? When will it happen? How will we know? 
Jesus takes a deep breath and tries to figure out how to explain the situation to them. How many times can you say the same thing over and over and over again? What will make it finally sink into their minds? A society, a government, a nation built on injustice cannot withstand the inevitable uprising of a people who yearn for freedom, for life. A time is coming when the desperation of those pushed to the margins, whose hope has been taken from them, will reach for their weapons and overthrow their oppressors. Jesus knows that this is coming, and he knows that many will seek to exploit that desperation for their own gain, and that's what he wants the disciples to understand. Jesus finally says, there are those who will rise up, and many will follow them. They will claim to act in the name of God and promise the people everything they want, but they aren't from God, and they will never be able to make good on those promises. Beware of those leaders. They will lead many astray, and the rebellions they lead will cost the lives of many, and it will tear the world apart. Those words had to have sent a shudder through the disciples. They knew other leaders who claimed to have the power to free Palestine from the grip of Roman rule. But those leaders had met with quick ends at the hands of the religious and political leaders. Still, many held out hope that a leader was coming, one who would finally throw off the yoke of their oppressors and establish another golden age like that of King David. Yet Jesus says, those rulers will fail and many will die in following them. How can that be? Jesus' words of caution remind us that many will come offering hope to those who are desperate, but far too many of them are concerned more for their own good than for the well-being of others. They will incite conflicts and wage wars with the promise of making life better, but in the end, they will destroy the world as we know it. These difficult and painful words from Jesus they're ones that ring oddly prophetic in our own time and place. But they are followed by words of hope that we all too often miss. There will be wars and rumors of wars, Jesus says, but don't be afraid. But how can we not be afraid? Is it possible to face war without fear? Nations will rise against each other. Communities will be pitted against each other. The world itself will be shaken to the core. The needs will be completely overwhelming. But don't be afraid, says Jesus. How? How can we face the end of the world as we know it and not be terrified? These are the labor pains of a new and better world struggling to be born, says Jesus. They are the signs of a society built on injustice and heartache giving way to something new. Jesus' words offer a cautionary hope to the disciples. They are not to place their faith in the powers that be of this world, but in the God who has from the very beginning been working tirelessly for healing and wholeness. In the face of despair that at many times may seem overwhelming, the disciples are to gather their courage about them 
and to walk forward into the midst of the suffering. They are to speak truth, embody compassion, and inspire a vision of the world made whole. When governments fail, when nations collapse, when societies fall apart, as they will do because they are composed of frail, fragile, fallible, fickle people, we, the church, have an incredible opportunity to step into the void and to be a peaceful presence embodying a more just, equitable, sustainable, and loving way of life. We have the ability to remind those who are mired in despair that our common life has never rested on the whims of those in power, but in our common respect, our mutual support for each other, and our respect for the natural world itself. Nations rise and fall, leaders come and go, but the people of God endure through the grace of a God who is faithful in good times and in bad, in life and in death, and in life beyond death. Jesus' words challenge us to reclaim this truth and to reach out to find our strength in each other as we face a world that continues to change more rapidly than we realize and in ways that we can never control. They encourage us to reclaim our courage and to steady ourselves as we take in the magnitude of it all and dare to look for God in the midst of it. And they also remind us to be cautious about our acceptance of the idea of American exceptionalism and dominance. Religious conviction and patriotism have become intertwined in a toxic stew of nationalism in the United States that threatens not only the peace of the world, but the very faith of the church itself. God is not an American commodity, and the United States is not immune from corruption or failure. The entire history of our nation testifies to these difficult truths. And certainly the horrifying events of January 6th with armed Americans storming the Capitol itself offer a sobering reminder to us of the vulnerability of this nation and of our democracy. And these challenging words from Mark Jesus urges us to place our hopes not in our nation or in our political systems, but rather in the God who transcends all boundaries and allegiances the God whose voice shakes the very foundations of the world and remakes it through love. Amen.